You may be seated. Last week when we started, uh, the, the message was on half-hearted discipleship. And we looked at that section of half-hearted discipleship and examined it and considered um, where maybe we would be considered like half-hearted disciples. You remember that the people did not drive out those that were in the land that was given. Why? Because they could not. Is that right? No. Because they would not. Instead of trusting God and moving forward by faith, they were apathetic. And I told you, some people have said it like this about uh, the book of Judges, that apathy leads to apostasy and apostasy leads to anarchy. It's just something that we have to kind of keep in our minds that what they were doing. Now, why would they do that? Like, why would you be apathetic? Why would someone like move in that direction? Why is it that they um, would not drive out the enemies in the land? I really think there's two reasons. One would be fear, and the other one would be comfort. I I really think that. And I, I honestly think if you were to sit down and look at your life, oftentimes you may be led by fear or comfort, one of those two. Fear might be something like you could say the fear of failure. Most people will not move forward because of fear of failure or of losing their job or being alone or losing control or someone better might be around you and you fear like not having that place of greatness maybe in the eyes of others. The other might be comfort because I think that's another example with them. They may have wanted an easier life. Have you ever wanted an easier life? It's interesting, they would go in and say, oh, we can overpower these people. And instead of driving them out of the land, what did they do? They enslaved them. Why? Because if you have people doing all of your work, you might get to sit on the porch. Right? And watch the world pass by. It's interesting, I was watching with the boys. Have y'all, do y'all, anybody watch Andy Griffith still? Okay. Oh, there are some people. Okay, okay. Um, but there was a, a time when this Malcolm Merriweather, he comes in and he starts like watching over the house and like he's doing everything in the house. He's cooking the meals, doing all this kind of stuff. And Aunt B's able to just sit back and be a lady of leisure. And when she, what became that? She was like the most sad, like she'd ever been in her whole life, you know. But it's interesting, in this kind of context you're thinking about, they really do, they're either afraid to go and defeat, or they say, we don't have to defeat these people, just make them work for us, kind of. So both of those things seem to be taking place. We made the point last week that we live in a culture very much like what the Israelites were living in. A culture that made promises of joy, comfort, and security, and power apart from God. They promised all these things apart from God. These idols had adherents that were very attractive to the natural eye. Evidently, there were things about these idols being tied to individuals, and you see that in our culture, 
we understand like so many times when you look at things, it's like the things that you're drawn to are not ugly, but beautiful, right? They're shocking. They're amazing or whatever you might say. Now, you might say, well, man, Israel's different than us. They had a land that was promised, and they were to go in by military might and run those enemies out of the land. There's a distinction between Israel and the church. I mean, don't you see that, Jared? I do see that. So what what do you do with that? How do we reconcile the fact that we are living in a world filled with idols... And we are not called to drive out all the people that are making those idols. We're not called to go and like run everybody off the East Coast. You know, in a sense, like just drive everybody off and then drive everybody off the West Coast. And just kind of just completely like run everybody out that's not a Christian. It is different with Israel because Israel was an instrument of judgment upon the wicked nations in the promised land. And they really, the earthly and the heavenly for them at some level were merged, right? God's heavenly government, the earthly government all together. Our relationship with Israel is different because we are like in an earthly kingdom and at the same time a part of a heavenly kingdom. And I mean, I hope you're thinking about this because it's very helpful when you're trying to think through even the Bible. But our relationship with Israel might be better served to understand it in light of the exile when they were living in Babylon, and yet they were living as God's people in Babylon. And they were to be a blessing to the people of, in the Babylonian Empire while not embracing the gods of the Babylonian Empire. So what do we do when we're living among idols? We are living among them, so what do we do? You know what we do? We work really hard at keeping ourselves in the love of God. Jude says the way to do that is by building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting anxiously for the return of Jesus. That's what he tells us to do. So for us, it's like we we want to regularly gather for worship, center our lives around the Lord, We want to learn how to weed out the unhealthy idolatry in our own heart. So we're weeding all the time. And replant with things that will grow righteous living and righteous thinking. We are not tearing down the cultural altars, you could say, in a physical sense. So for instance, have you all ever seen anything that looked like worship? In the, in, the, in the broader culture. You ever been to an SEC football game? I feel like there's this great stadium. People are cheering, singing songs together, right? People are watching with intensity to see and experience it. There's all of these things have the feeling of kind of worship. We're not waging war against the SEC, Right? That's not our calling. We, 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 we just have to make sure that that doesn't get into our hearts to the point where it dominates our lives, where we're bowing down to it and wanting. And, and, and so much so that like when, when our team loses, it doesn't send us down into a spiral of despair. 
So you just think about the cultural idols. How are we living? Well, we're not going like tearing them down. It's not like God says, hey, go drop a bomb over there and blow that stadium up. That's not our calling. But our calling as the church is to live faithfully in a foreign land. To live faithfully as aliens and strangers in this land. And to, by our lives and our words, proclaim that there is something greater and to be treasured more than all the treasures of this age. So how do you live among idols? I mean, that's kind of the issue that we're addressing. We must learn to spot them. We must see that, that we either like want to embrace them because of fear or comfort. And we need to kind of recognize that in our lives because really... It's not always bad things that are idols. It's when good things kind of become God-sized things. That's the bad thing, right? And so we're having to walk through life in wisdom. Some people love rules. You know why they like rules? They seem to think, oh, that'll make it really simple. I just do this and do this and do this, and everything is black and white. And the reality is, no, when you're living among idols in a foreign land, and you're wanting to bless the city you're living in, and you're wanting to bless the people there, and you're wanting to be salt and light, that is difficult for us to understand how to do that. While not embracing them, treasuring them, finding security in them. So this is kind of what Israel is facing. Like I said, there's some distinction between us and Israel. But I would just say every church and Christian should be diligent to spot their cultural idols and ensure that that they do um, do not fall into a cycle that leads them to continual bondage. How do you do that? I think one thing in this passage you'll see today is we remember the past. Another is you cling to the Lord. Third is you listen to his word. And fourth, I would say you practice spiritual disciplines. All of this could be called spiritual warfare. Every bit of it could be called spiritual warfare. And guess who calls it that? Jared? No. When the Apostle Paul like explains that to us, he talks about putting on the armor of God. Now, one last thing. The emphasis of Israel and the emphasis of the church is different in another way. There's a lot of things that are very unique, at least the same kind of in a way, but, but different. But one thing is, is, is the scope of the people of God. We know that God's plan ultimately was to reach people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we who are living among idols are seeking to spot them and eradicate those in our hearts, even, you could say, in the heart of the church, and then go out into the world with the message of the gospel. Calling out to people who are in darkness, calling out to people who the idols of the age have captured their hearts and minds, and they're leading them to damnation. And we're to call out to them in darkness. We're not running we are not kind of trying to kind of move into a place where we're completely separate from, but we're called to move into soldiers marching as to war. You know? Our lives should back up our message. We don't want it to, our lives to make void the, the, the message we're seeking to proclaim. So, 
We're going to look at that today and work through that. Chapter 1 of this book details really a little bit of victory, but mostly failed conquests. Chapter 2 focuses on like a theological analysis, analyzing it from God's perspective what was actually taking place. Both chapters 1 and 2 are introductions to the book of Judges. Okay, so let's go to chapter, Judges chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went, each to his own inheritance, to take the possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had, been, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him within the boundaries of the inheritance in Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all the generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So this is like a flashback. You ever done that? Like, in, in certain, like, like when you're watching a movie and it's unfolding before you, sometimes like you, it flashes back and for a moment you're like kind of your head's a little bit like you know what's going on and then you get it in your mind and then you can move forward this is kind of like a flashback to chapter 24 of joshua they had found rest in their enemy joshua was old he just he kind of gave them all the pieces of land that they were to be given and then he's about to die and what we find out is not only is he dying but that generation of people they're also in that place. Now, I don't know if anybody ever remembers like the book by Tom Brokaw called The Greatest Generation. Y'all ever heard of that book? And it's really about the generation who grew up in the United States during the Great Depression and who fought in World War II and everybody kind of surrounding that. And they're called The Greatest Generation. You know, most of us have forgotten that right? I remember a couple of years ago getting to go to a museum, a World War II museum. There were just a few people left that had fought in the war. And those people will not be around much longer. And there's kind of one of these things where all the benefits that you receive from that generation, it could be like a very short time and the Americans would not even know, right? It's, It's not there in their minds. Here we see the word new, or they did not know. It's probably not they didn't know the information. Had you said Exodus, they could have probably told you what that was. It's not that they didn't know the information. If you said Red Sea, their minds immediately would go back to the Red Sea. If you said crossing the Jordan... Walls of Jericho. Those people could probably respond by telling you what happened. The idea here is the saving acts of God were no longer precious or central to them. They did not love. They did not revere. They had not learned really to rejoice in what God had done. In a way, you could say they'd forgotten the gospel. That slavery and bondage and then being set free. They knew the terminology. They just didn't cherish it. 
we must remember the past, what the Lord has done, the victories that have taken place, but not just remember them. Love them. Cherish them. You could be one of those people that go to church your whole life, know all the stories. It's one of the most frightening things to me because my kids are hearing Bible stories all the time. They're constantly, like we have a family worship time almost every night. They are learning the truths of Christianity. They're learning the stories of Christianity. But then you're thinking like, what if they don't possess it? What if they don't embrace it? What if they don't cherish it? What if they don't love it? That's the most frightening thing to me. And so our prayer is not just head knowledge, but their hearts would be transformed by it. We must learn from those who came before us, the biblical history, church history. I think even reading, reading biographies of the saints of old, both in the Bible and outside the Bible, you can see and treasure God's work in the life of his people. So as we live among the idols, we remember the past. That's one thing we do. God's past deliverance is centered in the gospel. We also are to cling to the Lord. It says, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord. What does it mean to abandon? What if you abandoned? Like when I was a little kid, we would go down to maybe fishing somewhere, and we were about to put the boat in, there would always be little puppies. That's the weirdest thing. And I guess people did it there because they'd say, well, the puppies could get water, and then somebody maybe will pick them up because they were abandoning them. When we think of abandoning the things of God, that, that's what's taking place here. They serve the Baals or lords. They're kind of like, it's, it's a way, it's, it's the gods of Canaan. They're serving them like they, they are um, abandoning the Lord for what is false. The idols of their age that promise security and safety and peace and joy they are turning their eyes to them. And when they turn their eyes to them, they are turning away from God. You know what they're doing? They're following after gods who have no ability to save. Now, here's the interesting thing. Had they ever seen that in their history? Yes. Egypt, when you think about Egypt, you think... All the gods of Egypt, all the power of Egypt, and then the true God shows up, and what happens to Egypt? There's no power there. So there's, it's like a false thing. It's like behind the scenes, you realize it's all a facade. They had seen that. Everybody knew that. Even the world knew that at the time. Because they saw what their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was capable of. Now, what would lead a generation to forget that quickly? You might even say, whose fault is that? Who's responsible? 
Who is responsible? This generation where we live loves to always blame someone, right? For the reasons why their life is what it is. But you do have to ask, did the first generation fail to reach out? Or did the second generation just harden their hearts? Which was it? Usually it's a little of both. There are times when that happens. And so I think one of the big themes here, that what you're thinking about is saying, listen, cling. Just cling to the Lord. Try to demonstrate before your children not just the information of Christianity, but a heart for the Lord. Show them evidence of one who is clinging to the Lord, not clinging to the idols of this age. They are plentiful, right? And, and the way that they look, sometimes, like I said, it's such good stuff. Say, this is not bad stuff. It's not all bad. It's just that the direction of your heart, what you're clinging to, what you're gripping with all of your might, needs to, you just have to understand, like, it's proper place. It's like God doesn't condemn. There's so many things that He doesn't condemn as bad. Just when they become godlike in our eyes, in our lives, right? Now, what does this result in? Verse 14 and 15, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who had plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had, warned, as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. God gave them over. They, they were afraid they were comfortable, depending on the tribe. God gave them over. God allowed them to go their own way. It reminds you of Romans 1. God gave them over. And when they are given over, they, they find out what those idols and the, the people surrounding those idols are really like. And, and they begin to experience the judgment of God. It is almost as if God was standing with them, and then God went to the other side, and he turned his sword against his people. You think, good night. Really? Why would God be on the other side? The hand of the Lord was against them. The hand of the Lord, it begun with the hand of the Lord with them, now the hand of the Lord is against them. He had told them it would become like this. If they followed after their gods, they would be on the side of those gods. They would be on the side of those people. And that is against God. He is a jealous God. He will not tolerate his people worshiping other gods. So in his kindness, does that sound strange? Does that sound strange to you that it's kind of the Lord to say, I'm going to get on the other side? And chastise you, and you know, and chasten you, and like, like, break you down. Does that sound loving? It's almost like, is it loving for me if my kids are standing in the street and a semi is coming 
and I snatched them up and, 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 and disciplined them, is that loving? Well, that seems harsh. You snatched them up? You know, what, that's harsh. Is it? Or is it in my kindness seeking to rescue them? To rescue them from destruction? But you have to ask this morning, do you want to be under the discipline of God? If so, then you abandon the Lord and start trusting in what the world promises in order to give peace and security. As we live among idols, we must remember the past. We must cling to the Lord. And we must listen to the Lord. Look at verses 16, 17, and 18. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the land, and out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen. They did not listen to the judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They turned away from obedience to the commands of God. They would not listen. They hardened their heart against the Lord. Look at verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Even in God's disciplining of them, God is being gracious to them. God is rescuing them, but they're not listening. The idea here of whoredom, it's like a provocative image. It's a difficult thing for us maybe even think about. What are we talking about here? They are prostituting themselves. That's what, it's, that's what the Scripture is telling us. They're giving themselves up without any real pleasure or love in return. They, they, they come in this intense relationship with this idol that does not really care for them. They're enslaved by it. It's a form of slavery. That's the picture. Israel was God's bride, but they were not acting like it. Is there any prophet that talks about that? You remember Hosea? Hosea is kind of a picture for us of that, where this man's bride is running off into this kind of situation. He has to go purchase her out of bondage. Have you ever had a child that would not listen to you? You knew they could hear you, but it appeared that momentarily they went deaf. You ever had, you ever seen that? You're like... Oh, oh no, like take him to the doctor, run him to the emergency room. He can't hear any longer. Is that reality? They're not listening either because they're so focused on something else or they do not want to stop doing what they're doing. He is saying, listen to the Lord. Listen to the servants he's provided. Listen to his word. Embrace the wonder of his love. Don't choose slavery. God's discipline of His people comes as a result of His love for them. His anger burns because He is jealous for His bride's love. 
And you see, he's moved, they groan and he's moved with pity. And he, 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 they do not deserve grace. That is at the heart of the message of the gospel, is that you don't deserve it. They do not deserve the grace shown. They do not deserve it. That, again, that is at the heart of it. Some people want to say, no, they deserve No, they do not deserve it. That's the one drum that's beaten all the way through the Bible. Is that people do not deserve the mercy and grace of God. He, sh- he, he shares that with us. It's a gift to us. So as we live among idols, we must remember the past, cling to the Lord, listen to the Lord. And then in verse 19, I think I would say just practice spiritual disciplines. You might say, well, all this is kind of tied together. It kind of is, but it helps me kind of think through this with you. Verse 19, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were corrupt, uh, more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. I was talking to somebody this last week about this person that has some extra income and they're able, they're able to go to like a second home. And they're watching this kind of take place, but it's almost like then the spiritual practices of like gathering with the church, of being in the life of other believers, of pursuing things that are good for the soul, they begin to kind of slowly fade away. It's kind of a frightening thing. And so I, I was thinking about that this weekend, and I just think what we have to understand is God has provided these means of grace for us, like gathering for worship and hearing the truth of God and singing His praises and all of those things. And it's in the practice of those things that He is drawing us back to Him. It really is. It's like playing a sport. Let's say you played baseball. There are mechanics. And you just keep working them. You say, well, that's kind of boring. Show up every week for practice and, and work the same thing over and over and over again. And, and, and somebody's coming alongside you and saying, look, you need to correct that a little bit. You've got to work on your hand-eye coordination. You've got to learn to keep your head down. You can't pull, if you pull your head out and look this way when you swing that bat, guess what you're going to do? Strike out. So you keep your eye on the ball. How do you do that? You keep your head down at contact all the way through. Your head never leaves that. You keep doing that over and over. If you do this, you're not going to hit the ball consistently. Keep your, and you're like, what? Are you, you're going to keep telling me that over and over and over again? You're going to keep working those things into my life. I've heard this before. I don't need that anymore. But the reality is, what you see is the practices of rejecting the Lord begin to, in a way, it's like going down a muddy road. They begin to, like, as you move that down that road and down that road and down that road and down that road, you begin to kind of build ruts there. And then all of a sudden, you're not even thinking about it. You're just moving down that road. And that is what the people of God are doing. Their practices are driving them deeper, deeper, deeper until one day they're stuck and in bondage. We have to learn not only to practice, but to practice properly. 
I would say to you this. You have to learn how to worship properly. You could sit here every week and be completely complacent in your worship towards God. Completely complacent in engaging your mind. Completely complacent in your singing or not singing. You're here but not here. And I think that's just one of the things that we have to see and understand. Now, if you don't learn spiritual warfare, you will know God's anger. That's what you see in this. Not only did you see that in, I think, verses 14 and 15, but here in 20 through 23, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel because they would not obey Him. In a way, Israel was a case for humanity. Some people don't like that terminology. But I think if anybody was going to make it, Israel would make it. They had all the benefits of the law of God, all the benefits of living in the promised land, all the benefits of having this temple worship and all those things. They had all these benefits. If anybody was going to make it, they would make it. And so they failed. They really are. You say, hey, let's look at humanity. Will they pass the test? And it says in 3, 1 through 6, Now these are the nations the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was to teach them. But in all the training, you say, failure. The end of the Old Testament, you go, I mean, it, if you just stop with the Old Testament, your head would be down, your heart would be broken. And you would say, have the promises of God failed? Even in their failure, God's promise would stand. You hear that? Even in their failure, God's promise would stand. Many years later... God would come down to us. God the Son would come down from heaven and become a human. And where Israel failed, Jesus was faithful. He passed the test. The test of obedience to the Father. The test of, will you obey my law? Everything about Jesus said, He was faithful. God said of Him, this is my beloved Son. In whom I am well pleased. Over and over, failure with humanity, even the most blessed of humanity. And yet, in their failure, we're reminded that God's promise stands. And it is centered on one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scripture in 1 Corinthians said, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Him. So that when we are looking at this failure, we are not sitting there saying, oh, I'll work harder. I'll work harder for acceptance. If I can only work harder, I can do better than Israel. That is not how you're supposed to read the Bible. What you say is, of all the people, Israel... Should have been faithful. But Israel is a story of a hope that seems lost. And then comes Jesus. 
and hope is in a way reborn. Because in Him, we find the good news. And not only that, through Him, not only do we gain acceptance, but He sent the Spirit moving in our hearts that the law would not just be something written in stone, but written on our hearts that we might live a life fighting off idolatry and walking in righteousness, putting off the sins that so easily entangle and putting on holiness. We do that perfectly? No. But we are striving together towards that end and proclaiming that message. And so I pray that you would do the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for all you've given us. Pray that you would, we would be honoring you through our worship today. In Christ's name, amen.